You are listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Good morning, Mission family. Merry Christmas to you. Um, so we're going to be continuing this sermon series on the stories of Christmas, and that got me thinking there's something special about Christmas that lends itself to stories that we remember, right? Maybe it's that, that it's a particular time of the year and it's easy to you know, attach things to it, or maybe it's a time when family comes around and stories result from that. But it got me thinking about a story from my past. Um, this is the 70s, 1970s for you young people, um, and... Uh, the hot toy of the year was this thing called electric football, and I wanted an electric football game. And I think there's a picture of it coming up uh, back there, Owen. So that, that was the thing, you know, and I begged my parents for this game. I wanted the electric football game. And my parents, like, looked at it and thought, that actually does not look like a lot of fun. So they didn't get it. So my grandparents felt really badly. You know how grandparents can be like that? And decided they wanted to buy it for me instead. So I remember I tore it open on Christmas morning, so excited about it. I get it. And I set it up. Now, if you guys know anything about this game, any of you about my generation know this. Like, you plug it in. And like literally what happens is it vibrates and these little characters that look like little football players sort of bump against each other. I remember sitting there looking at it for about 10 minutes thinking, man, that's all that's going to happen? This is like nothing. This is really boring. And thankfully, though, my parents had thought of a different idea for Christmas that year. And they got me, and I think Owen has a picture of this as well, this game called Rod Hockey. And this game, that was the hot, I think you can actually still find it in arcades some places, but this was like a game, we literally probably played this hundreds, maybe even thousands of hours when I was a kid, it was just, we had a ton of fun with it. So dad and mom, if you're listening, you were right, it was okay. Um, but that was a little bit, of, you know, just a Christmas story for me. And today we're going to be looking at uh, another version of the stories of Christmas, and we've sort of been looking at some of the lesser players that were part of the Christmas story. And today we're going to be talking about Herod and the Romans. And the thing that's really neat to me is they thought they were the big players on the stage, and the God of the universe played them at Christmas time. So we're going to see that today. Uh, we're first introduced to Herod. In Luke chapter 1, verse 5, it says there, When Herod was king of Judea, there was a Jewish priest named Zechariah who was a member of the priestly order of Abijah, and his wife Elizabeth was also from the priestly line of Aaron. So Luke uses the fact that Herod is the ruler as this historical anchor to the narrative that he's going to share. And um, we can know a little bit about a little bit more about who this Herod is. He was sometimes called Herod the Great. Um, he was uh, his racial background. He was Idumean, and this was a people group that was sort of south of Judea in that region. So he was Arabic uh, in terms of his background. Uh, interestingly, he had a grandmother that was Jewish, and the thought is that his whole family converted to Judaism at that time. Um, he was appointed as what was called a tetrarch, which would be like sort of a fairly high but not the highest level uh, leader of the region by a Roman uh, ruler called Mark Antony. So he's in this position as tetrarch, and the, there's a rebellion at sort of the level above him in the uh, government of that region. And he, um, 
he decides that this is a problem, so he actually travels to Rome to uh, make a bid, make an effort to have Roman troops come and, and quell and quash this rebellion that was going on in the region. And uh, interestingly, surprising to him, when he gets to Rome, the Senate appoints him as the king of the Jews. Sort of an interesting word. Just remember that term, king of the Jews. So he goes back to Jerusalem and Judea, and he ends up leading a fight against sort of the authorities that had already been there. And he's able to conquer them, and he, he drives out what was called the Hasmonean dynasty, and he introduces from he and his descendants the Herodian dynasty that controls that region. But remember, they really did this under the authority, under the auspices of Rome. So his role, his responsibility was to collect taxes for Rome, uh, to put forward the Roman culture, uh, even uh, to represent Roman interests within that area. He was famous for doing a lot of building and construction in that area, and probably most known for the expansion of the temple and the redevelopment of the temple during that period, so which was central to Jewish worship. Much of the rest of what he built was very much built in a Roman style. It was really part of taking that area and fostering and furthering Roman culture in that area. He was known for being a tyrannical ruler, for ruling uh, through power and oppression of the people, and using the authority of the Romans as sort of the backing for being able to do that. Uh, and there's a lot of historical evidence is that as he aged, as he got closer to the end of his reign, he actually became very paranoid about maintaining and controlling uh, power. So that's a little bit about uh, Herod. I think it's interesting, too, is that during his time, remember he was put into power by a guy named Mark Antony, but there was a conflict that went on with Rome and a guy named Caesar Augustus, who's going to play into our story this morning as well, takes power. And Herod probably reveals a little bit of who he was as a person because he's quickly able to get Caesar Augustus to like him and keep him in his position. Uh, we know from history that Herod dies a horrible death. Uh, we actually don't know what he died of. They didn't know at the time, but they describe it as involving the putrefaction of his flesh. So it was a pretty horrible death that happened shortly after the birth of Christ. I want to go back to Matthew chapter 2, because this is the next opportunity where we're introduced to Herod. So Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read the verse, 12 verses of that chapter. It says there, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his stars at rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called the meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come from you who will be the, my, who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, 
and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them, stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. They, then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. So we are reintroduced to this character, Herod, and we're going to see and understand a little bit more about him. So verse 1 says there, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. Very interesting, the contrast here for Luke's account of, of Christ's birth, right? In Luke's account, there's all these details, there's shepherds, there's a whole story that unfolds, and Matthew just sort of goes through it really, really quickly. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Again, tying it into the historical context of who was in uh, the uh, authority at the time. And we're introduced to these individuals, these wise men that, are, that emerge, that come to visit Christ. Another term for them was magi. We don't know much about who they were, but they were considered wise in scholars, perhaps in the country they were from. They were probably into astrology. They were into magic. Uh, they were into interpreting uh, dreams, those kinds of things. And they come to Jerusalem. It's not necessary that the star stops over Jerusalem. But think about this. They were coming because they were looking for a king that had just been born. And where do you go? You go to the capital city. So this is where they show up to. And it describes Herod as being deeply disturbed, right? Because I told you earlier that he had been appointed king of the Jews. And they're asking, where is this person who's going to be king of the Jews? So his power is threatened by the birth of this child. And so he responds to it. And it says, all the people were deeply disturbed. Do you think they were really disturbed that the Messiah was perhaps being born? They were really disturbed because the king was really disturbed and he was a tyrannical guy. He gets upset, everybody you know, feels the pain and that's the, the, the reality that they're experiencing there in that moment. And Herod calls together these religious leaders. They would have been the Sadducees and Pharisees and he asks them, where's this Messiah supposed to be born? And they quote from uh, the book of Micah and they quote the prophecy set that says that Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, is to be born in Bethlehem. And Herod hatches a plan right away. We see this in verses 7 and 8, right? In verse 7, he calls these wise men in for a personal meeting, and he asks them, when did that star first appear? He wants to find out how old this child is, this usurper to his throne, the one that's going to take his power away from him. So he finds out, when did the star first appear? And then he asks them, he says, when you go to Bethlehem and you find him, come back and tell me. Because he's got this plan in mind right away that he's going to eradicate, he's going to get rid of this threat, uh, this threat to his power, this threat to his throne. So he wants to find out, how old is this baby and where exactly is it? Because I'm going to take care of this problem once and for all. So the wise men leave, uh, they go to Bethlehem, they find the baby Jesus, and they worship him. It's an interesting word. This word worship in this context actually is the word that's used for, uh, for the word homage, which would be more of the idea of somebody recognizing and giving reverence to a, an, a, a king versus the idea of really understanding this as the God of the universe. Um, but it's an interesting contrast because Herod says, oh, that's what I'm going to do as well. But, of course, he wasn't. 
So the wise men, they, they come, they uh, worship the king, and they provide these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. God shows up in a dream and warns them not to go back to Jerusalem, so they go back to their home country a different way. So we pick up the story again in verse 13 of uh, Matthew chapter 2. It says there, After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with a child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with a child and Mary, his mother, and they, they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious when he realized the wise men had outwitted him. He sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, <coughs> based on the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. So we come back into this story again, and we recognize, um, we see God's hand in it, right? That despite what Herod wants to do, God's about fulfilling prophecy. So he sends his son to Egypt as a place of protection for him. And uh, uh, Matthew describes there that this is a fulfillment of prophecy, right? It's interesting, though, in this section, verses 16 through 18, there's a fair amount of controversy about this. This is where Herod kills the baby boys in Bethlehem. There's a set of Bible scholars, and I almost should put quotes around that, who actually don't believe that the Bible is true, so they spend most of their time when they look at Scripture just finding ways to disbelieve what is in there. So this is actually one of those stories that they don't believe actually occurred because there's no other historical record of this event taking place. But the thing to keep in mind, and this is really important as believers who can trust Scripture, is that there's more copies of the Bible there's older manuscripts from upon which the Bible is built than any other historical document, hundreds of times more. So when they say there's no evidence of this, they're pointed to something that might have only, we might only have two copies of it from like the first century AD even. So there's, there is some debate about this piece. But I think the explanation is very simple. Did this event really take place? The city, the town, the village of Bethlehem probably had somewhere between a few hundred people and maybe as many as 2,000 people. So this event takes place. There might have been two dozen boys murdered at that time. And in a world where news didn't travel very fast, where murder and uh, intrigue and uh, death were common, uh, where there was no internet and uh, no Twitter and X or whatever, uh, Information didn't pass very quickly. So for Josephus, who was a Jewish historian who wrote somewhere 50 to 70 years later, for him to write about something that was relatively minor in the big picture of things, for him not to write about it is not necessarily surprising. But I'm going to tell you this, and this is what's captured in the story. Every one of those dads and moms who had one of those boys that was murdered, they felt the pain of that. They felt the hurt, the uh, um just the, the grief that they experienced from it. But the narrative goes on. Uh, verse 19 says, When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph, and he calls Joseph to go back. He says, it's safe now. You can go back to your home. And so they plan to go back to Bethlehem, 
And uh, as they come back, they find out that Herod's son is actually ruling in that area. And so they make a decision to go to Nazareth, which is where Joseph was from, instead. And that, again, is part of fulfilling prophecy. So Herod's not the only character that we want to look at, the only story today. The other individual is a Roman, a guy named Caesar Augustus. But he actually wasn't born under that name. He was... He was born under the name Gaius Octavian. Middle school was tough for him. (laughs) So uh, he was born Gaius Octavian, and uh, his uncle, his great uncle, was a guy named Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar did not have any heirs, so he actually adopts his great nephew, Gaius Octavian. So he's renamed Gaius Julius Caesar Octavian. And and a few years later, uh, Julius Caesar is uh, assassinated, and the Roman leaders decide to put three individuals in charge, one of whom was Mark Antony, another was this Gaius Octavian, and then a third individual. And this leads to all this conflict and fighting. And so first they get rid of the third individual, and then eventually there's this battle between uh, Gaius Octavian um, and Mark Antony. And it leads to Mark Antony escaping to Egypt and becoming a meme with Cleopatra. Not really. That's not really what happened. But he did go there, and they did end up dying. And Gaius Octavian becomes Caesar, and he adds the name Augustus to his name. And the name Augustus uh, points to something. It's sort of the word August. It's uh, the word to mean to deify. So he sees himself now as a god. He becomes this Uh, He becomes the emperor of Rome. He's usurped and taken all the power that it used to exist in these other structures within the Roman government, and he's brought it upon himself. And he actually introduces worship of the emperor. He uh, has temples that are built to his glory. So he sets himself up as Caesar Augustus, this individual that is to be worshipped. And what's interesting about it is he ushers in something that's called in Latin Pax Romana, the Roman peace. And it's a a time of relative lack of conflict in the world. And probably the biggest thing that it did is introduced a lot of economic opportunity because there was incredible trading that went on across the Roman Empire because there was this ready ability to be able to trade goods and services within the Roman Empire. We're going to see this gentleman, though, in the book of Luke. So we're going to look now at Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. At at the time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This is the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. So Luke uh, anchors this Christmas story in the historical reality that Caesar Augustus was the king and that he had made this decree um, to, uh, for uh, people to go to their hometown, their ancestral home, for the purpose of a census that was a setup for taxation. So like all politicians, Caesar Augustus was really good at extracting taxes from his people. 
So this is the, this, the in fact, this was actually a novel concept that went on for uh, generations after this, this idea of having a census. And the idea of it was that it, this is a way to fairly ask for taxes from individuals. So he sets this up. Now, much like the, what I shared with Herod, there's some debate about when this actually takes place because we know from when Herod died in 4 BC that that was right around the time of Christ's birth. But we, there's other evidence that points to Quirinius actually being a governor later on. So some people would point to this and say, oh, well, is this conflict? It couldn't have happened the way that the Bible says it happened. What's interesting, though, is that the word translated um, in verse 2, that says this was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor, that word first there can also mean former or prior. So it could mean that the statement could read, this was the first census prior to the one taken by Quirinius. So this sets up the whole Christmas story. So we've had these two players, right? Herod, Caesar Augustus, they have all this power, and they're part of this Christmas story, this Christmas narrative that takes place. I think there's two lessons for us today from these individuals. The first thing I want us to see is the contrast between the Pax Romana and the peace of Christ. The Pax Romana, the peace, the Roman peace, was established by and maintained by the edge of the sword. Think about the irony of that, right? This is great quote. The Romans regarded peace not as an absence of war, but as a rare situation which existed when all opponents had been beaten down and lost the ability to resist. That's peace, right? That was their version of peace. Um, so you had this contrast uh, between the Pax Romana and the peace of Christ. In the Pax Romana, when you read the history of that time period, it was filled with infightings and, and uh, palace intrigue. Uh, Caesar Augustus is always like manipulating whether it was his own marriage or marriage of his leaders so that they would create these alliances with people that were enemies. There was constant fighting going around on, particularly at the outskirts of the Roman Empire as they either sought new territory or repelled uh, enemies that were going on. So you had this, you, you did have some realities from it, particularly in terms of economics, but you had this whole contrast of the Pax Romana and what, and what God meant by the peace of Christ. So the Pax Romana related to this horizontal relationship between people, right? This ability for us to be able to trade and have wealth and, and income and so on. And the peace of Christ begins with a vertical relationship, the relationship between us and God. It says the real reason we don't experience peace, that we don't have peace as human beings, has something to do about who we are in our relationship with God. You got to remember that that wasn't God's design. God designed us to be in relationship with Him, right? In creation, we see that God makes us as human beings uh, in His image, made to be in fellowship, in relationship with Him, at peace with Him, experiencing shalom with Him. And Adam and Eve choose to disobey God. They choose to sin and introduces sin into all the world. And the result of that sin is fractured relationships, beginning with that vertical relationship with God. And then continuing through the relationships with one another, right? Within one generation of Adam and Eve sinning, you have their son murdering his brother. The fractured relationship between us as human beings. And it wasn't just that. It was a relationship between man 
in the environment. It says in, when it describes in Genesis 3 the curse, you've had it easy in the garden. You know, things are easy for you. Now you're going to have to work by the sweat of your brow. Thorns and thistles are going to choke out the stuff that you're trying to plant to live on. And then beyond that, it introduces a fractured relationship with ourselves. It was the beginning of anxiety, depression, you know, all the illnesses that we deal with where our bodies fight against ourselves. But we know that the uh, coming of Jesus was about a coming of peace, right? We see this in Isaiah chapter 9, where it promises that the coming Messiah would be the Prince of Peace. We see this again in Luke chapter 2, when the angels are singing to the shepherds, talking about the fact that peace is here and come. And so Jesus Christ has come to bring peace. What does he do? He does that by offering the potential for our vertical relationship, our relationship with God to be restored. Because he lives a sinless, perfect life. He dies a death on the cross. And on that cross, he carries, he takes the punishment that we deserve. The thing that, that caused us to be separated from God, our sin, is now has the potential to be taken care of. So that when we confess, when we repent, when we accept what he's done on our behalf, it restores our relationship. We can now experience peace. And that's incredible. Right? And that makes possible the restoration of our relationships uh, horizontally, makes possible the restoration of who we are, the connection to the world around us as well. And that's really seen and captured in the, the Hebrew word shalom. Because the word shalom, their word for peace, doesn't just mean like an absence of war. Doesn't mean the, the kind of thing that the Pax Romana is, that we have peace because I'm going to beat all my enemies to a pulp. It's a, it's, a, it's a word that is uh, captured in the idea of wholeness and restoration, and that's that restoration of our relationship with God. So one thing for us today is to understand this contrast between the Pax Romana and the peace of Christ. Second thing for us to understand is the fact that Caesar Augustus and Herod thought they were in control, but God is in control. Or maybe a better way to say this Caesar Augustus and Herod acted themselves, right? They impacted history, but God was all about his kingdom-building work. So um, Caesar Augustus sets up the census to be taken, and what happens from that? It's what leads Joseph and Mary to be able to, to go to Bethlehem, which fulfills prophecy because there Jesus is born like the prophets had foretold. Or um, Herod... Um, uh, plots to kill the babies of Bethlehem, and God sends Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus to Egypt, and again, fulfills prophecy that my son would come out of Egypt. Or uh, Herod's son was ruling in Judea when they return, and so they end up going to Nazareth, and again, that fulfills prophecy that uh, something good does come from Galilee, from Nazareth. Or even the fact that there's this Pax Romana, the reality is the spread of the gospel is in part made possible because of the Pax Romana, particularly the ministry of Paul, the apostle, right? He's able to travel the way that he traveled because of the power, the impact of the Roman Empire. But Caesar Augustus and Herod thought they were players and they were getting played by the God of the universe. I think there's two things for us in that. There's this huge amount of anxiety frustration, 
that uh, goes on in American, Christian American culture today when it comes to the topics of politics. We get all concerned about who's going to win the next election and, and how horrible these different people are in, in office and what they're doing and all these kind of things. Guys, remember, I mean, these individuals who were ruling at the time were horrible individuals, and God was all about his kingdom-building work, and that hasn't changed. That's exactly what he's doing today. It doesn't really matter who's in power in Washington, D.C. doesn't matter which you know, political party you're part of or which political party is uh, making decisions. At the end of the day, God continues to be about his kingdom-building work, which is about individuals coming to have a relationship with him of experiencing the peace of Christ. Second thing I think that this needs to remind us of is that you and I have this tendency as human beings to want to be in control, to want to be doing our own things, to be a little bit like the Herods and the Caesar Augustuses of our time period, right? Of, of wanting to feel like we're having all this action on history, and yet we need to remember that God is all about his kingdom building work, and that's really what's going on. And so I think it needs to give us a whole lot of humility about who we are and what we're doing and the real impact of it as well. As the worship team comes back up, let's just close our time in a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for uh, these stories of Christmas, these narratives, these individuals that sometimes... With our focus on your son, even, we, we don't think about, and yet there's things that we can gain and learn from it, Lord, as we think about Herod and the Romans, individuals that had no idea that they were part of uh, doing what you wanted to have done. Lord, we just are reminded by the fact that there's this real contrast between the peace that the world offers and the peace that you offer, Lord. May, we, may each and every person here today, Lord, experience that peace with you. Lord, it's something that is unexplainable in the world's terms, and there's something that it brings to us when we can experience that peace by having a relationship that's restored uh, with you. And God, as we think about uh, the fact that you are really in control, that you have authority, that you're all about your kingdom-building work, may that give us humility about ourselves and humility about even the politics that we deal with in the world around us today, Lord. I just would ask that your will would be done during this Christmas season. We ask this in your son's name. Amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.